Welcome to In The Thick. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And it's Friday and it's ITT Sound Off. So the first thing we're going to do is a noise disclaimer because, okay, I'm sorry, fam. I am still in Punta Cana. Good for you. I know. What that means is that I'm recording essentially outside because if you follow me, you know I have an indoor-outdoor house. So there might be some construction, birds, dogs. Bachata music, you know. Who knows what's going to be going on in Julio's house because, you know. But anyway, so there you have have it Done. noise may be heard all right so our first topic is so important voting rights so during a speech in atlanta on tuesday president biden called for an end to the 60 vote threshold currently needed to pass voting rights bills in the senate now this is a move that would finally allow legislation to pass against voting restrictions and gerrymandering yeah without the threat of a Republican filibuster. By the way, we're going to get into this a lot more on Tuesday's drop next week because we had a conversation with Ellie Mistal, so good. Uh, who's a justice correspondent at The Nation and fast friend of In the Thick. Oh, yeah. Instant new bestie of In the Thick. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so with the 2022 midterm elections rapidly approaching, you know, a lot of people are saying, look, President Biden's speech was really good, but why did you wait so long? Yeah. Where was this fervor that everybody had when people voted for you? And instead, it's just been like, eh, we'll figure this out. So, all right. On Tuesday, Cliff Albright, co-founder and executive director of Black Votes Matter, spoke to MSNBC about the action that we need to see now from the Biden administration. Let's listen. It's been six months since, since Joe Biden has talked about voting rights. And in between, he did no type of action on it, or at least none that we could we could see. And so he's got to follow this speech up, whatever he says today, with with a plan, with um, meeting with, with with Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, the same way he had meetings around around infrastructure. And he's got to follow it up with, again, going to the caucus and giving a passionate speech. If he had given a speech to the Democratic caucus that's as passionate as a combination of his July speech and, and then Senator Warnock, our senator from here in Georgia, who gave a very passionate speech talking about modifying the filibuster, if he gave that kind of a passionate speech to the caucus followed it up with some actions, followed up with some some carrots and some sticks, then we might get the legislation that we need. <sighs> yeah. Uh, okay. And it's like, are we the only ones who are thinking about the midterms? And why is that? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a shit show, the midterms. It's going to be a, uh, I don't even want to think about it. I've been talking with a lot of journalists, Latino, Latina journalists, and they are fired up to cover it. But for the administration, this statement, too little, too late, I swear it's like... <sighs> A knife in the heart because I'm like, I cannot believe that this is happening again. And what's up with Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin? That's what I was going to say, because, you know, all this talk, Biden does the speech and then he goes to the Senate like they have the Democratic caucus lunch Thursday. And then he comes out and he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know if this is going to happen. And then obviously Kirsten Cinema goes on this like bizarre speech. And totally overlooks the racist history of the filibuster. Do we need to, like, remind people exactly that this is what, you know, led to Jim Crow and... Rooted in white supremacy in resistance of white people to change. Rooted in, you know, the post-Civil War and all. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden everyone's talking about they had a meeting at the White House, an honest and, and frank discussion about the filibuster, about what were we going to do next. Let me step back for a second. Does not surprise me that two white senators 
have so much power in Washington, D.C. and get so much attention. This is the part about Kirsten Cinema that is mind boggling. She's in Arizona, right? This is, you know, SB 1070 reactionary state right now, you know, fighting against Joe Arpaio. She is so worried about the extreme Trump Republican base when she should be courting the future of the state, <laughs> which is Latino and Latina. Hello, Kirsten Cinema. Do you uh, not look at demographic data? And my gosh, if there's any place that's a weird kind of hopeful, it is Arizona. Right. Listen, I need to acknowledge something from last week before we move on to the second topic, Maria. Yes. Because, you know, when you were talking about the fact that the U.S. government has the power to issue charges on the seditious conspiracy on the January 6th, two attempters, mm-hmm. guess what happened this week? <laughs> and this is according to New York Times, leader and founder of the far-right Oath Keepers Militia, Stuart Rhodes, was arrested on Thursday and charged with, get ready for it, seditious conspiracy! for organizing a wide-ranging plot to storm the Capitol last January 6th and disrupt the certification of Joseph R. Biden's electoral victory. That's according to federal law enforcement officials. Maria, wow. Mm. Oh, look what just happened. Like, mm. Mm. Are they listening? Mm. Yeah, listen to In the Thick, people. Like, we were so ahead of this one. Seditious conspiracy, it was in the book since the Civil War, but when did it get used? This is why my head explodes every time. It was used against the Puerto Rican nationalists and independentistas who were fighting for the freedom of their land. Quickly came out when the Puerto Ricans showed up. To charge them. But yes, I'm glad that we brought some receipts. (laughs) Yeah. Why do I think that these white men, you know, are going to claim victimhood and patriotism in defending these seditious conspiracy charges. But when it came to Puerto Rican nationalists, it was like, here come the foreigners attacking. Exactly. They're going to say freedom of expression, right? Yeah. We as white men can do that. But you as Puerto Ricans or as black people, right? Cannot. You cannot. You're scary. All right. So let's move on to our second topic, which is the latest news out of New York City. Also in my beloved borough of the Bronx, which shaped me. And actually, this happened near the neighborhood where I grew up and where I went to school, which was a devastating apartment fire in the Bronx last Sunday that killed 17 people, including eight children. Deadliest fire in the city in three decades. And it was caused by a space heater that residents used to supplement their building's faulty heating system. But as many have pointed out, including residents of the building, it was negligence by the building's owners that led to this. And many tenants were immigrants from the West African community, which has been really leading these efforts to support families affected by the fire. On Wednesday, I'm so proud of this. Claudia, I call her Claudia, Claudia Irizarri Aponte, who used to be a correspondent at Futuro Media, used to write for Latino Rebels. She's a reporter now for the city. She was on Democracy Now! to talk about what she's been hearing from the building's residents. So let's take a listen. I have heard from multiple tenants who say that they also use space heaters because they did not find that their apartments were warm enough, um, that they they claimed that their windows were not insulated. And on very cold days, they would actually get frost on the interior part of, of their windows. Um, of course, this is an, not an old building by New York City uh, infrastructure standards. It's about 50 years old. It was built in the 1970s, in fact, as a model of affordable housing in the city, receiving federal and state funds to subsidize um, housing. 
Um, but certainly in a lot of these buildings, you know, tenants are not able to control the temperature in their own apartments. They don't have thermostats. That is all up to the building management. And for a lot of these tenants, many of whom are seniors, children, multi-generational families living within the same household, you know, they had to resort to using ovens to stay warm. They had to resort to using space heaters to stay warm. And unfortunately, you know, when these um, tools malfunction, you get um, fires like the one we saw on Sunday. So a lot of the tenants that I have spoken to, in fact, all of them, um, you know, are really asking for accountability, not just from the state and city agencies, but um, first and foremost from from their landlord and the building owners. You think about it in the larger context and the people who died, the 17 victims. Yeah. And the fact that this building did not have outdoor fire escapes, for example, mm. this is what it looks like when people are like, oh, those communities are dangerous, right? Because you don't know the community. It's not that a community is dangerous. It's that a community is abandoned. Correct. If you're an immigrant or a refugee from Gambia and you have, you know, a name like Haji Dukare, you know, like, are you going to answer the calls of the people? You dismiss them. And this is Julio, of what we talk about all the time. Yeah. When you dehumanize people, black people, immigrants, refugees, mm -hmm. this is what it looks like. And to blame them just. Yeah. So, Maria, not that I want to get into conspiracy theories, but it's kind of a coincidence that a co-founder of the investment group that owns this building in the Bronx, which has had a history of neglect is a member of Mayor Eric Adams's transition team. Mm. I don't know. Like, do these owners benefit from things like this, from tragedy? That's the big question I have. And I'm sure people like Claudi and other people at the city, which is a great local mm -hmm. news outlet, are going to be exploring this. But um, there's a little bit more extra news in New York, too, while you've been away. And Yeah, people movements, right? Using people power as an act of democracy. So in New York City on Tuesday... Public school students staged a walkout. They're calling for better protections and for remote learning options because of the surge of COVID-19 and this Omicron variant. Yeah. And at Rikers Island, New York's notorious jail complex, about 200 detained people have been taking part in a hunger strike to protest the dangerous and unsanitary conditions there. Yeah. We will remain vigilant on reporting on the city where Futuro Media is based. Yeah. So out of respect for... The 17 victims who died in the apartment fire in the Bronx. Here are their names and ages. Isa Tujabi, 31. Haji Jawara, 47. Osumane Conte, 2. Serajane, 27. Seydou Toure, 12. Hawa Mahamadu, 5. Haji Dukure, 49. Haja Dukare, 37. Mustafa Dukure, 12. Mariam Dukare, 11. Fatumata Dukure, 5. Fatumata Drame, 50. Futmala Drame, 21. Muhammad Drame, 12. New Maisha Drame, 19. Omar Jambag, 6. Fatumata Tunkara, 43. May they rest in peace. Our final topic, it's a little 
Niche. <laughs> inside media, inside public media, but this is yeah, the space yeah, that you yeah. are from. and We have to talk about it. We're kind of part of the story. I'm part of the story. We're also reporting on the story, which is what's been happening at NPR, the network where I started my career. There are a number of hosts who are not white who have left the network over the past year. Many of them were women who are not white. So last week, Audie Cornish announced her resignation on Twitter after hosting All Things Considered for nearly a decade. She wrote, I can't speak for all POC, but I want to be clear, I do not have to. Our experiences at the company vary, and there are some common threads. Yeah, Audie has announced that she has gone to CNN. And the former host of uh, Weekend Edition Sunday, Lulu Garcia Navarro, right. also announced her resignation from NPR last September. And Lulu's a friend of the show. so We both know Lulu well. And Lulu has moved on to the New York Times to work on an opinion show. And we wish them all the best. But this is interesting because NPR, in a very NPR way, decided to write a story about what's going on inside the shop. So I got to give them credit to at least make the attempt to be like, okay, this is what we're going to report on. In that story, like colleagues have said that the network asked Lulu, and I'm quoting from the NPR story, to dial back expression of her interests as a Cuban American or in social justice matters. Mm, mm, mm. I just instantly thought of you, Maria, when I read this quote. How many times has Maria Hosa been told to dial it back mm-hmm. and also failed to fully address pay disparities between these, you know, non-white women and their white male colleagues. So former Morning Edition host Noel King and 1A host Joshua Johnson have also left the network in the past year for opportunities at other media companies. Maria, I mean, you were quoted in The Verge about mm-hmm. all these hosts that have left NPR recently. Like you said, you are a child of NPR. That's where you earned your journalism chops in a lot of ways. And you've seen it. What are your thoughts about all this? I'd love to hear what you're thinking now. And and let's just have a couple of disclaimers about Latino USA. NPR distributed us. It's always been produced by Futuro Media as of 2010. And we are now, you know, we moved to PRX in October of 2020. So let me get that out of the way. But give me all your thoughts from this perch now. Yeah. So, no, I left NPR as a correspondent in the year 1997 to go be at CNN. And you're right. I have not been a part of NPR, even though NPR distributed Latino USA. So I guess here's the thing. I'm really sad that the things that I was feeling and dealing with, like in the 1980s when I first started and then when I was a correspondent in the 1990s, that a lot of this feeling, this language, this vocabulary, this sentiment would still be present. So, yes, when I read that quote from Lulu, I was just like, you know, gut smacked. Is that what you say? Gut smacked? <laughs> gob, gob smacked. I was gob smacked. This is, see, NPR would have had a problem with that. They yeah. would have been just like, no, you must say it this way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thing is, even at the beginning when I was on the air as a correspondent, I would have to fight back people saying, how dare she say her name, Maria Hinojosa. Right. It was always kind of like, we're not going to deal with this. Anyway, so you know my big theoretical, the way I look at this in a large way, is NPR and many of the people who continue to run and work, and they have very good intentions, but they think of it as it's theirs to share with non-white journalists. It's like the exclusive club, yeah. We are going to do better for you. Yeah. And I cringe at that 
labeling of this. You know, they were like marginalized communities. NPR has a problem with marginalized. I'm like, let me tell you something, bro. I am not marginalized. Preach. Do not call me marginalized. By calling me marginalized, you are perpetuating the problem. No, you want to cover communities that you do not cover. That's what we're really talking about. You marginalize them. They're not marginalizing themselves. So the whole notion that NPR is kind of like, well, we're going to do better. We're going to share more. We're going to include you more. We are going to hire more of you. I'm like, nah. I don't want to like be like, nah, 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 nah. We have our own like new lane here. But there is something refreshing about doing what we do at Futuro where we can create our own lanes. My other big mantra is that you cannot say that you're practicing excellence in journalism if your newsroom is not representative. And so that's why I'm saying for public radio, NPR in particular, they need to do a deep series of like therapy. And it's not easy because you basically have to assume the fact that you have created problems. You know, you have to take responsibility. And mm. and so I'd like to see that a little bit. You're saying this with love, like as we end this recording. Pero claro, of course. And I want more journalists who are not white and journalists of conscience of any race to be part of NPR, of PRX, of Duro Media, of lo que sea. Yeah. I want them. We need not fewer journalists, more. Yeah. The message, Julio, is that Futuro says... Bring your whole selves. We want more of you because the more of you who are bringing your full selves into our newsroom, the better journalists we're going to be. And if we continue to base ourselves on data, yeah, the data is on our side, Julio. You're the data king for Futuro Vida. <laughs> our numbers keep on growing, right? Our listenership. I know. And that's when you have to do this big, deep analysis. Can't even think of cutting a piece of the pie. Throw the pie out. All right. Friday. In the thing, <laughs> throw the pie out. <laughs> Pa fuera el pay. <laughs> I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Uno, dos, tres. Dear listener, remember to go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because it really helps. Remember, you can listen to In the Thick on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts on. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In the Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell your family and friends to listen. In the Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Hashanahata, Lisa Salinas, and our fellow Sarah Hershander with editorial support from Mike Sargent. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Gabriela Bias. We're going to have to work very hard to clean up the construction sounds in the background. <laughs> our digital editor is Luis Luna. Thanks to Raul Perez for recording me as quietly as possible. Yeah. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Captain ZZK Records. Dear listener, we will see you on our next episode. Remember, no te vayas. See you, Julio. Bye, Maria. Peace, y'all. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.